vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board. Thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Oh, Matt, the bartender tonight was entirely too generous with my old-fashioned, and I am ripped, ready for a good show. And in honor of our guest tonight, I got a simple question for you. What are your thoughts on armpit sex? I have never really thought about it, and... Now I'm going to have all manner of images that I don't think I ever needed to have. Look, look, obviously a downside is armpit crabs, but you slide the genitalia on in there. You get in, you get out. Doesn't seem like the world's worst thing. Thank God. This isn't one of the all ages episodes. <laughs> uh, we, we, yeah. Uh... Alexander has so many questions right now. And for Alexander, so don't go to BYU. <laughs> and fortunately, we're not going to be doing Alexander's story until next week. Uh, but yeah, uh, we are joined by a, a guest this week, our fellow writer at Comics XF, Patreon backer, all around good dude, Tony Thornley. How are you tonight, and Tony? Utah partisan Tony Bar- uh, Tony Thornley, who is actually currently in Portland, Oregon, in a hotel room overlooking the Columbia River. So nice. I, I am in a Holiday Inn that is clearly a converted resort and one of the most interesting-looking Holiday Inns I've seen in my life. Also, do not blame the entire state of Utah for BYU's weird perversions. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. So, look, uh, look, I want to go on the record. I'm pro armpit sex. Okay. All right. Let's, let's not cast aspersions here. And, and for the record, Matt and I both gagged on video as Will said that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, once again, liberal East Coast Jew, I'm just like, not, no king shaming. I'm just like, that was not any kind of question I was anticipating tonight. <laughs> Not, not at all where I thought tonight would go, but Will, you never failed to surprise me. Curveball. Tony, uh, we'll ask you what I always ask our first-time guests. Uh, what is your history with Batman? I didn't like him very much at first, but one of my earliest comic book memories is actually of a, an issue you're very familiar with, Matt. So... My dad was a trucker and a very specific kind of trucker. He hauled milk from dairies. And that meant that there would be long days on the truck. And during the summer, I'd often go with him. And one of the earliest memories I have with him is being in the back back of the truck in Malad, Idaho. And we had stopped at a gas station in Malad and picked two comics. One was the first part of Spidey's Tiny Adventure from Amazing Spider-Man, the series of annuals. Um, And it had a bunch of weird backups for characters that I thought were much more important than they are. The only one I remember for sure was Solo. You know, everyone's favorite Spider-Man supporting character, Solo. Um, Google that one, kids. 
and the issue of Batman with the Brian Boland cover in the Kremlin. That uh, was my first issue of Batman. Yeah. All I could remember from it was the villain was the takeoff of the KG Beast and Jim Aparo art. And, you know, I, I that didn't make me a Bat fan. Um, but beyond that, it was... It was actually finding a copy of one of these that we're talking about tonight. And we'll, I'll mention it when we get there. And Batman, the animated series that prevented me from dismissing Batman wholesale. And then, you know, a few decades later, uh, James Tanyan's run made me realize, hey, this Batman guy is not so bad. I just didn't like the grim and gritty of the 90s. That's all it was. Once you got into the, the the better parts of the 90s, I mean, I, I will always, I mean, that's what, that, that was my, what I grew up with. I, I love me the Mensch, Grant, Dixon era. I think there's so much good material and we, we, we've read some of the good stuff from there and we'll, we'll get back to it and I'll hope that I remember it being as, as it was. But actually tonight, all three of our stories will be from the 90s because Tony is here because he specifically wanted to talk about Batman and intercompany crossovers. Tony loves a good intercompany crossover. And we are theoretically dropping this the Thursday before the new Batman spawn will be coming out. Being that this is an intercompany crossover and an intercompany crossover involving an image comic. I'm not 100% sure if that will come out on time, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. And so tonight will be three different Batman crossing over with characters from outside the DC universe. Ooh. And we are starting with Batman versus Predator. This was a three issue miniseries written by Dave Gibbons with pencils by Andy Kubert, inks by Adam Kubert, colors by Sherlyn Van Valden Falkenberg. Letters by Adam Kubert and edited by Denny O'Neill and Diane Schultz. The cover dates are January and February of 1992. Something has come to Gotham and is, it is hunting the most dangerous game. Batman must find a way to defeat the galaxy's deadliest hunter before the Predator takes him for its latest trophy. Yes, that is the same Dave Gibbons who is better known as an artist, best known for Watchmen. And this book had a really interesting format. It came out with both a deluxe prestige format and a floppy newsstand. The prestige came with trading cards or posters and the floppy was just a floppy. No ads in either, which indicates that there was some kind of financial reason for this to come out beyond normal ad sales, because I cannot imagine much in the way of comics outside of a prestige nowadays coming out without ads. And, and worth noting, it's also not a code approved book. Yes, it is not. Because Dark Horse wasn't, I think at that point, we were at a point where it was really just DC Marvel and Archie who were submitting to the code by the early 90s. And the code would limp on for another, still another decade, which into beggars, the 2000s. Yeah, beggars the imagination that the code lasted that long. 
but there you go. Before so, we get started, I want to just jump in here and say I have never seen a predator. Really? Really. So you came in pretty fresh on this, or not I, fresh, I, but I, I mean I certainly know of Predator, right? I I got the general sense through just kind of cultural osmosis. Um, but yeah, never saw, you know, certainly the Arnie movie um or any of the more recent movies. I think I played one alien versus predator game, maybe. But yeah, this was this was pretty fresh for me. Have you seen the aliens movies? No. Okay. So Batman aliens will also be an interesting experience for you when we get to that one. Aha, but that's one I've already read. Yeah. And spoiler. Bernie writes in art, so he's gorgeous. How early is this in the, the, the Kubert brothers? I mean, we're definitely post Adam Strange. I think this is their second or third published work because Adam stopped working as a letterer pretty quick into their careers. So the fact that Adam is lettering this is a pretty good indication that it's extreme. This might be their second published work. Yeah, because we're still pre-X-Men because Adam Hop, Andy hops on Write at Executioner's Song, which is still a year or two off. And so, yeah, this is very early. This is pre when they were just fresh faced kids which this is a pretty big assignment for something that for artists that new i mean working with dave gibbons who he also wrote one we got to get to at some point a world's finest miniseries with steve rude art and boy it's been a long time since i read that one but that's like a, a post the first post-crisis meeting between Luthor and Joker is in there. So that's that's going to be a fun one to hit at some point or another. But this is very much in the vein of an action movie. This is very much in that Predator. I, I've seen Predator multiple times. I think I've only seen Predator 2 once, and that's Predator in New York. So this more falls in line with that and so i cannot speak to it as i don't have i don't think i was even really watching it it was a movie that was you know on cable so a predator movie on cable is going to be chopped to shit this is batman fighting an alien not that kind of alien but an alien entity in gotham it's this thing that is hunting people looking for a challenger and Batman having to hunt it down and not necessarily being prepared for this thing, having all of the skills and the tech and everything that it has. As Gotham media calls it the see-through slasher. And I'm like, you guys should have put together the fact that this was an alien or something really weird a (laughs) bit sooner. I will say, I did like the fact that there was none of that aliens aliens don't exist which you often get in batman stories from writers who aren't used to batman or who are trying to sort of do a batman somewhat removed from continuity i'm so used to their you know batman doubting the existence of aliens or magic and it's often like dude you're on a team with superman and dr fate you obviously have to believe in this stuff 
you're not face to face with a guy who can turn invisible. Uh, kind of seems like there's aliens with green blood. Don't forget the green, yellowish green blood. Yeah, and tech that is beyond what we normally have. I like the setup of this, the the build that you get the predator coming to understand the way things work on earth. It's like, oh, okay. It lands and, oh, it here's a prize fight. So it's like, all right, well, these guys have to be the toughest guys in town. And they specifically call in the text, the king or champion of Gotham. The winner is champion of Gotham city multiple times and his name is king the the, the guy yeah. who wins the title is king yep. and, and then he he progressively goes down his next victim is the man who challenged and nearly beat king and then the men who hired these two boxers and so on and so on and you see the predator's code of honor as bruce addresses it at one point or another or that it wants to fight those who can put up a fight and it won't kill something that it views as beneath it. Meanwhile, Batman, we get a story that has Batman take it pretty hard here. The The Predator takes him down pretty hard at the beginning of part two. So I, I'm like, Will, I have never seen a Predator movie. I have read a lot of Predator. I loved Dark Horse's Predator comics. Still never seen a single one of the movies. I might eventually watch the most recent Prey. But this was my first exposure to the Predator. And you can tell that this is the theme and the setup. My biggest problem with this is the second issue. I, I really, truly, this is one of my favorite Batman miniseries. But that second issue is just kind of a drag because it is entirely that there's the first few pages where the predator takes down bruce beats him pretty badly and he's only saved by his wits and his tech and then he's in full body cast for the next 18 pages he, he's out the entire it's not even seeing him doing physical therapy or anything like that, trying to get himself back into shape. He's basically in bed for the next 18 issues until he's like, all right, I'm done dealing with this. I'm going to go take that alien down. And, and that's my only problem with this, this series. Otherwise, I think it's one of my favorite uh, Batman miniseries ever published. And the fact that Alfred hides this from him and Bruce seems to just believe it. That Alfred's just like, oh, yes, everything's fine, Master Bruce. Bruce eventually, once he's out of all the wrappings, makes his way down to the Batcave to use the Batcomputer because Alfred is hiding the television and the newspapers from him. It does not take the world's greatest detective to tell when Alfred isn't letting you anywhere near any news that things are not going swimmingly in Gotham. Uh, see, I will counter... Uh, with my opinion that I think three is a drag that the fight just goes on and on and on and on and on. 
I did not mind too so much because there is so much story development of how basically basically Gotham is falling to the Predator and Batman is rising and you get that great splash at the end of two that is all right bring it on Predator whereas I think to me the fight in three just just it just takes too long and and you mentioned that splash that splashes of anti-predator bat armor which plot hole here bruce mentioned something having happened to his eyes and his eyes are bandaged the entire time i cannot figure out where his eyes were damaged in the big fight that took him down and injured him so badly but anyways so he's got a sonar helmet so he can see the invisible predator and to compensate for whatever eye damage alfred references near the end of number two and it rules. It is one of the coolest images. I, I never read issue two until like last year. I read the first issue and the third issue for, for the longest time. I had an uncle who loved Batman, loved Predator, but he never had issue number two. He had one and one and three. And yeah, I, I just love did, that did armor. You- did you just fill in the gaps in your brain and you were like, I, okay, I'm satisfied. Yeah. I, I mean, it was pretty easy to guess. Oh, well, he was beaten at the end of number one and here he is in this cool body armor. And number three, I guess he's just like, okay, I can't do this on my own now. But we've got that moment in number three where I think they, they just felt like, Oh, we have to get to a dramatic moment in the story. Like the final fight. And Bruce just says, Oh, I don't need it anymore. It just tosses it aside. That was so weird. It was. I agree. And also, Alfred, as cool as this moment was, somehow they get back to the cave. The Predator knocks over the penny on Bruce. And Alfred comes down with a old-style blunderbuss hunting rifle and blasts the Predator, which is a cool moment, but also just, it, there was a literal Chekhov's gun with this in the first issue, by the yeah. way. But it also is just like, that just came out of nowhere to give Alfred a cool, like how how did they end up in the cave? How did Alfred know that they were in the cave quite yet? And this is a muzzle load rifle. D- did he really have the time to hear the penny over, hurry and find the gunpowder and um excuse me bullets for the muzzle load and get down there just in time to prevent bruce from getting beheaded by the alien or does bruce wayne keep a loaded musket in his house at all times i was about to say yes because batman who is absolutely not someone who would pay attention to gun safety would of course leave a loaded rifle blunderbuss just waiting for anybody who regularly breaks into his house to take it off the wall and shoot someone. But cool moment they followed out that immediately after he ditches the helmet and some of the armor, he picks up a Louisville slugger and literally becomes Batman. Yes. The goddamn Batman. <laughs> I did love Batman with the baseball bat. It comes down to him and the predator going hand to hand at that point or bat to predator see i knew will 
a full issue fight is not your thing. It never no. is. That that will always take points off for you. You know me well. I do. I feel like that was earned because that's what this is. This is an action movie. This is that final sequence where the latter third of the movie is the fight. I think we often run into things with, this is a, a bad example somewhat, but I'm trying to think of a better, a better example, but there are movies that are these big action movies where the big set piece is the last 10 minutes of a two and a half hour movie. It's like, no, I came here to watch Godzilla kick that thing's ass. I don't need two hours of people talking about Godzilla before Godzilla comes in and kicks somebody's ass for 10 minutes. I want the action piece. Now, I will say, if you would have said Star Trek Into Darkness and that stupid fucking train sequence, I would have left. It would have been YouTube for the rest of the episode. I know better than that. Again, you know me well. The fight scene, there's a variety of locales. There's different tech. It's not just two guys punching each other. It's not, you've never read The Death of Superman, have you, Will? How have you? No, I have. And again, in Death of Superman, you got that fight scene that stretches on for 50 pages. That's right. enough. And that one is just the two of them punching each other. It pulls away for some great character beats, but there isn't the variety of locales over that last two issues. This is one issue where there's a lot of business to it. I've got to say, though, to digress slightly, Death of Superman does have, in the last four issues leading up to Superman 75, the gradual four panels for a full issue, three panels for a full issue, two panels for a full issue, and every page is a splash for each page. That's just stellar, oh, I stellar love storytelling. Anyways, that yes. digression. That is a great, yes, that is a great bit of storytelling. But another thing I've got, this art, I mean, the Kuberts stepped onto the page fully formed. I think Andy today is very similar. He's matured, he's tightened up, but this this is not like going back and reading George Perez's first Avengers issue and reading his last Avengers issue and going, are these the same artists? This This is an artist that stepped in fully formed his brother knows his his style perfectly and inks it perfectly. And man, these colors are good. I don't think I've read any other comics colored by Van Valkenburg, but she did some awesome, moody, slightly watercolorish colors. I love the colors in this book. Yeah, this is stellar in in general. I think there's a couple of pages. There's the one splash at the end of part two where it's been declared that Batman has not contacted Gordon in time and the Predator just steps out onto a, a gargoyle on top of Gotham Cathedral. And it is, yes, it is stunning. With the bat signal in the background and the Predator raising its arms in triumph it's phenomenal 
that's where he cut predator, off the issue. Oh yeah. This gnarly predator style gargoyle that he's standing on to. This is the coolest, most metal gargoyle that has ever existed in a city full of heavy metal gargoyles. It is what Gotham is best known for. To be a bit of a downer, I will say in some of the action scenes, I think some of the individual panels were a bit messy. It was hard to tell exactly what was happening in a few panels. And so trying to keep up with what was going on was a bit confusing in spots. But overall, looks fucking great. Yeah, I think the first time when the Predator kills... The first prize fighter, King. Especially if you don't know Predators, the the use of the net and things, which is a Predator staple, is a bit confusing if you're not used to that. Especially the the trademark, and this is just, I've gleaned, again, having not seen any of these movies, the trademark ripping the head off with the spinal cord and eating the flesh off the skull, that is a Predator trademark. It happens in the last two panels of this page, but it's murky because it almost feels like they were trying to be code approved just in case they needed to be. And they couldn't. And, and then they just in the end go, and eh, we're not going to submit it for code approval because that that was just it was very unclear exactly what happened to King there. Yeah, a lot of the violence does happen off panel. Like, for instance, when the mayor gets it, you don't really see what happens there. You see plenty of blood, uh, but you don't see much of the violence. The same when the financier who's sort of playing the mob gets it. Like, he goes into the elevator and there's screams and you see his assistant's reaction when the elevator doors open. But you don't see the predator butchering the guy. And the worst of the bunch is not Detective Not Sarah Essen, who, so as I said, the Predator progresses through everyone that is ticked off that the king, the champion, had been killed. And he's progressing through. So that means that he decides to attack Gordon. And this is right after Bruce unwraps his head for the first time, unwraps the cast, and Bruce calls Gordon to warn him that you need to get out, Jim. And it's extremely unclear that the sidekick detective who looks closer to, it looks like a mix between Babs and Sarah Essen. She's been there the entire time leading up to this. I assumed that she was Essen. I missed a couple of times that they called her a different name. And then she dies completely off panel in a way that is not, most of the others are obvious deaths. In her case, it took me a couple of pages to realize, oh, wait, she's dead. Kendowski. You never, I don't yeah. believe you even get a first name for her. She's just Kendowski. Let's assume it's Sarah Kendowski. Yeah. <laughs> or Barbara. Gibbons plays with uh, one of these things where I often think when it comes to British writers, Long before American writers were playing with the militarization of American policing, because you get a whole thing with the SWAT captain here, who is also not Bill Pettit, but is totally a setup for Bill Pettit when we will eventually meet him. Who's like, what we really need to do is just start kicking down doors looking for this thing. 
And eventually you get that they were granted permission for this unless Batman stopped it. And Batman winds up coming back and stopping it just in time to stop for what is all intents and purposes, martial law being declared on Gotham. They even called in the National Guard to assist the SWAT teams. And I mean, in the end, Batman does defeat the Predator before it commits Predator seppuku. It failed and Predators are the great hunters. And if they fail, they take their own lives. And Batman gets the Predator sword to add to the trophies in the Batcave because, hey, might as well add a weird alien sword amongst everything else. Why not? The sword that I don't think the Predator used the entire time, by the way. I don't, I think that sword only shows up in that last scene as the Predator ship shows up and what, five, six other Predators, including a King Predator. I, I, that sword is completely insignificant to the plot, which was kind of unfulfilling for me. See, I thought, see, for me in my head, it's always been that the Predator King basically is like, okay, you failed. Here's the sword. You throw yourself on it or we're going to kill you with it, which granted is probably unfulfilling, but I didn't see it having been around. At least it wasn't like Chekhov's Predator sword to go with Chekhov's blunderbuss. I very much read it as a ceremonial sword, uh, as as the type you know uh, in uh, in olden days when the uh, the Civil War general would surrender his sword to his uh, his Union opponent because uh, Confederates are all dirty traitors who should die. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the way I read that that closing couple of scenes there. And I agree, but I think it would have been more satisfying if it had been that classic traditional spear that we've seen multiple times, that probably would have been a little bit more satisfying as a trophy. Tricky to commit seppuku with a spear, Tony. True. Very true. That's a, you really have to have your second hold it while you run full (laughs) tilt. (laughs) You know, predators, they commit to a bit. So maybe... What is yeah. predatoring if not committing to a bit? Very true. You know, and one of the biggest things that when I first reread it, when I, again, read it in hold for the first time last year, it surprised me that Dave Gibbons has done so little Batman because I think he nailed Gotham, Batman, Gordon, Alfred. He nailed all of the core elements so well that it surprised me after I read it for the first time, I went and looked, and it was only that World's Finest miniseries that you mentioned, Matt. I am kind of stunned that they've never brought him back for other, at least one or two, hey, big deal miniseries. Or even the sequels to this. There are two other sequels to this, and one's by Chuck Dixon and the other one's by Doug Mensch, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's Mensch and I think Glacy. Yep. And then Dixon and one of the artists Dixon was working with at that point in the 90s. A house-style DC artist. I mean, someone that you wouldn't know their name until you read the book. Right. This is my last thought on this. Uh, I don't know if we're getting ready to wrap up, but this is all I got left. I thought this was an interesting book. I thought this was a fun book, a weird book, uh, not at all a bad book, but I kind of want it to, and I certainly don't know where the sequels go, but 
I want it to be more bizarre. Like I want it to be really fucked up. Like I want, I want predator versus vampire Batman, right? If we're going to have a crossover and I think this is a major problem with our other two stories tonight. If we're going to have a crossover, let's do some weird shit. Uh, And I don't think this book does nearly enough weird shit. So I I can tell you the sec, the sequel is Batman and predator versus getting into the middle of a gang of assassins and increasingly silly and goofy assassins that are clearly all cannon fodder because you can't kill Arkham inmates in a predator miniseries and a crossover miniseries. And the third one is a weird father son bonding story that I was not able to get. But the second one gets into the weird shit you're talking about, which I really enjoyed the second one. Okay. That's, that is a, um, mensch glacy joint with the crazy martial artists and things because that's that that's one of their sticks paper monkey come back <laughs> alas not that one ah. uh, i will say gibbons did has also written at least one black and white he did write and draw a black and white short at one point or another i can't it was one of the uh, gotham knights backups i believe there is also Superman and Batman versus Aliens and Predator. And as we have seen with Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves, there are diminishing returns the more ands you add to a versus. <laughs> but you see, you aliens are to... magic, and so they Superman's vulnerable. You do have to remember, though, that came after... There was this series and then Superman versus Aliens by Jurgens and Kevin Nolan. Dan Jurgens and Kevin Nolan. And that was as good as this series is. Yeah. But it, it, too bad, too bad you guys will never be able to cover that because it's entirely a Superman story. But that is one of my favorite Superman standalone miniseries. Tony, it's Tony, just so good. Tony, don't don't come on our show and tell us what we can't do. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's find a tangential connection to batman and cover it anyways there is also a superman predator that i believe is alex maliv art i i remember Ooh. seeing it i've never read it but it's one of those where i remember seeing it and now i will vamp for a second while i use the magic box in front of me to see if i was correct on that yes david michelin and alex maliv Ooh, that's interesting. The, the the wildest of the crossovers for 20th Century Fox's Alien franchises, including Predator and Alien and Prometheus and all that. I think the wildest intercompany crossover that these characters have ever been involved in, though, was Stormwatch ver- or excuse me, Wildcats versus Aliens, which is a remarkably important book for an intercompany crossover because it wiped out all of Stormwatch and set the stage for Ellis and Hitch's authority. And that is just the most wild thing you could you can think of with all of these intercompany crossovers. It's very few of them are continuity affecting. This one of of the three tonight, this is the one that is most continuity adjacent. I mean, the only problem with this one is some no one went, well, couldn't we call in Superman to find this alien? That's... Otherwise, 
so yeah. often the problem. I mean, when you get something s- supernatural or something alien in Gotham, it's always like, well, you know, you've got Superman and you've got Zatanna on speed dial. It's just you argue that Bruce is just a stubborn ass and won't call for help when he should. Yep. But I think that about wraps this one. One point of interest for this as well. This, as best as I can tell, this is the first intercompany crossover between a big two, the DC or Marvel book, and basically anything that is not DC or Marvel. There have been DC Marvel crossovers and there have been indie crossovers before this. But realistically, without this being so good and successful, we probably wouldn't have gotten anything but DC versus Marvel crossovers ever again. Yeah, I can't think of any either, so. Yep. So now, Will, after I interrupted, I apologize. That's okay. That sound of silence means it's time for Batman Predator on the big board. All right. We currently are at 189 stories on the big board. Number one remains Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 40 is A Savage Innocence, Spectre, Volume 3, Number 51, where the Joker takes the power of the Spectre. Coming at number 69, a book that's down with armpit sex, it's Batman Adventures, Number 25, Super Friends. At number 80, an unpopular opinion, I'm sure, at this point, is Batman the Killing Joke. At number 120 is the second volume of Injustice Gods Among Us. Down at 160 is Harley and Ivy, the three pseudo-connected Harley and Ivy stories by Deanie and Tim. And hey, guess what? All the way down at the bottom, it's still White Knight. Still terrible. All right. So, where do we start with this? Top 100 question mark? I think so. Because number 100 is Uh, currently Batgirl Day One, the Batman Adventures issue that's the first comics appearance of Harley Quinn. And I think this is better than that. I also might throw... Just for the significance in two points, the one I brought up a minute ago, and also the first Batman work of longtime Batman penciler Andy Kubert might even be up to a top 75. I don't know that I'd say top 50, but it's your list. Mm. But yeah. it does have some significance there, too. That is true. I mean, 75 is currently uh, Homewrecker's Life on Mars, the Brave and the Bold tie-in comic, which is fun, but trifly. So I think it does go above that. And it's interesting that we were, again, we're talking crossovers, right? 74, Batman the Spirit. Batman the Spirit is prettier. I mean, Darwin Cook, but it is such a trifle. It does not do much it's it's goofy it's jeff Loeb doing his jeff Loeb thing of let me cram in as many cameos of characters from these franchises as i can it it definitely falls above that number 
50 is currently the third volume, the third miniseries of Batman Black and White. I'm going to say my ceiling is probably 60 Blood okay. Secrets. Mm, yeah. Okay. I can definitely go with that. That's the, uh, for those out there, the Detective Comics Annual, where once a year Batman goes back down to Alabama to rub in the face of a guy who he couldn't quite prove legally that he orchestrated a bunch of murders that he saw Batman and he knows, and he will come back every year to point this out to him. All right. So that's, so we're not going to go above 60, 66 is one of our favorite trifles. Uh, Where were you the night Batman was killed, which is a goddamn delight, but is not as significant as this because as we said first that art by andy cooper who will come back and be a regular batman artist for a number of years and this sort of major watershed for intercompany crossovers so we're talking between 60 and 66 that's that's a, a limited range all right well i gotta i gotta give this one for you all right you gotta you gotta help me on this one i think this is either going to be 61 or 62 Either 61 or 62. Because I, I have a heart of 61 is my beginning and my probable end, which is that Bruce and Leslie Tompkins sort of talking about Bruce's formative years. I love that issue. I love the whole Bar Davis run. So I would probably put it below that and above Made of Wood, the Brubaker, Zercher. Batman and Golden Age Green Lantern story, but yeah. I could see. Okay, I was gonna say I could no, see I'm, it going I'm, above I'm, my beginning of a probable. No, I'm I'm good for that. You know, Golden Age Green Lantern is just too weird. I'm sorry. Okay, so it is our gun. So Batman versus Predator is our new number sixty-two. Spoilers for probably the rest of your show. There will probably only ever be one intercompany crossover that will challenge that as the highest intercompany crossover on this list i would almost guarantee that now i mean there are some others that are fun there's some others i really enjoy i don't know if there are any others that have any enough significance to top that i think batman versus aliens and batman teenage mutant ninja turtles one are probably going to be in the same neighborhood Probably. That's exactly kind of what I was thinking. Give, give or take five or ten spots. I mean, there's some of the Marvel ones. Like, I have to go back and reread. There's one that will be the, the flip of the next one that we're going to be covering that I remember really liking. And I like the villain team in that second one. But I'd have to go back and reread it because it's been a number of years. And boy, howdy, do I wish I had any strong memories of either Batman Daredevil or Daredevil Batman. Because that one always struck me as it should have been better. Both of them should have been better than they were. Because those are two characters that should work so well together. But we, though, we are not here to discuss those tonight. For Our next story is Disordered Minds which is Spider-Man and Batman number one. The writer here is J.M. DeMatteis, pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by Scott Hanna and Mark Farmer, colors by Electric Crayon, lettered by Richard Starkings, and edited by Eric Fine and Danny Fingeroff. The cover date is September of 1995. 
A government program is seeking to cure insanity through experimental computer chips in brains. And the first two test subjects are the deadliest madmen on earth, Carnage and the Joker. But unsurprisingly, the experiment fails and Batman and Spider-Man must face their deadliest foes as well as their own inner demons before death rains down on Gotham. We have covered various bits of Demetrius on this podcast before, most notably Going Sane, which is another Joker story. But these creators at this particular moment are very much associated with Spider-Man. And this is the Marvel half of the Batman, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Batman crossovers. Again, I yep. want to go back and reread Batman Spider-Man, which came out a few years later. And as I believe definitely Dixon on scripts, I think it might've been Dixon and Nolan and is a Kingpin racial ghoul villain pairing, which I remember being really cool. But this one is so completely nineties with the Joker and carnage. And yeah, it, it's wild. So this is, as I've, gotten into the genre of the intercompany crossover there are two distinct types there are the pretend have already always existed in the same universe the whole time which all three tonight are that which interesting a lot of early image intercompany crossovers are like that spawn batman young blood x-force just pretend that they are all in the same universe and the other is portal crossovers X-Men, um, X-Men Star Trek, Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Those are the portal that finds some way to cross universes. Batman Predator works as the latter because you can believe that there's an alien race out there that you, you don't have to do that suspension of disbelief that there's an alien race out there that has that tech and can absolutely kick Batman's ass. With a character like Spider-Man and a character like Batman, the latter struggles because they are two characters that are so distinct that realistically you're better off finding the portal method than just trying to pretend that because it makes the story jump the shark so many times through the course of this relatively short prestige format once shot. It was one of my biggest problems with it, that just by assuming that they existed in the same universe, you just kind of go, well, that's a little hard to believe. That's a little bit too much. I don't know about that. It has the uh, multiple Robins issue because Peter is like, boy, Batman, he's a legend. It's like, Peter's got to be in his mid 20s at this point. He's married to Aunt Mary Jane. Right. They, they make a point of the very 90s trope of reminding you how insanely hot Peter Parker's wife is. Um, by, <laughs> show, by showing her with her flowing hair in bed. Yes. So, so Peter and MJ, I mean, Peter has been Spider Man at least 10 years. At this point, and there's no way the Batman has been Batman, that Bruce has been Batman longer than that. We are at a point, if we're in 95, we're a little after 
Zero Hour, which set a 10-year timeline for the DC Universe. So we're maybe 11 years in, technically. So Batman only came out into the world a year before Peter became Spider-Man, if you're looking at that. And so those crossovers, unless you really pull back, become really awkward. I, I do remember liking, since I mentioned it a second ago, with Daredevil, Batman, the fact that Harvey Dent and Matt Murdock went to law school together, I thought was a cool little bit of connective tissue. This whole story is an exercise in contrasts. Batman versus Spider-Man and Joker versus Carnage. That we look at the different ways in which Peter and Bruce deal with their trauma and the different ways the Joker and Carnage, both of whom are unrepentant killers with triple digit body counts, view what they are doing. And while Dimitrius gets all of these characters, he kind of clobbers you over the head with a lot of narration and a lot of telling and not as much showing as there probably could have been. I want to jump in here with something that I learned from reading this, this book. Um, did you know that both Batman and Spider-Man suffered losses in their lives that shaped them as heroes? Uh, apparently Batman's parents were killed and Spider-Man had this, uh, this uncle Ben figure who was also murdered and that sort of propelled them on their path to being to being heroes it was it's a startling coincidence now will but you need to back up the first four pages of this also reveal that cletus cassidy aka carnage was the cause of bruce wayne's trauma and nameless thug burglar who eventually becomes the Joker, was the burglar who killed Uncle Ben and caused that trauma, which is of all of the stretches that I was talking about a minute ago, that has to had to be the biggest and toughest one for me. Now, you see, I entertained that possibility, and then I thought, no, I must just be high reading this. I took that as weirdly weird metaphor. Because I was like, there's no way that's literal because that's just, no, no, that's, no, no. The burglar and Joe Chill are established characters. That is Demetrius stretching a metaphor to the point that it is just about to snap. It, it, I, I cannot take that as literal as much as they seem to want to at various points. You, you say that though, and I'm pretty sure Yes, I'm, I'm looking at it. Peter sees the Joker's face in his memory as the burglar. And Bruce sees Cletus waking. It was a dream sequence in the first four issues or four pages. And near the end of the issue, it's it's a direct flashback. So it, it's a stretch. And it's it is a wild, wild stretch. I prefer my Batman who 
can coach himself to not dream at all rather than the Batman who dreams the same dream every night of his parents being murdered. Yeah, that one is a, uh, yeah, I'm not, not a fan of that. This is very much in its time. Like, there is a, an absolute footnote that like, hey, this takes place before this part of the clone saga. There's an actual footnote reminding you that this takes place before Peter realized he was a clone and quit being Spider-Man for a while. And Batman is in his very 90s, sort of nearly Batman 89, but not quite costume. The trunkless, all shiny costume. I mean, and I mean, Bagley is sort of the Spider-Man artist of the mid to late 90s. I mean, this is a guy who was on Amazing forever before being on Ultimate Spider-Man forever and ever. And is currently drawing adjectiveless Spider-Man. After drawing some Batman, I mean, he did a little bit of the, the Winnick run right out of Reborn and did the Trinity miniseries, the third weekly the, the Law of Diminishing Returns weekly series during the 0708, I believe, or 0809. And he drew the Justice League, James Robinson Justice League run where Dick was, as Batman, was the leader of the Justice League. Yes, he did. And it was him and then Brett Booth. So, you know. <laughs> no, Brett Booth a lot to cover. It's one less problematic creator we have to deal with. Well, the the commentary, the the Batman-Spider-Man contrast is remarkably heavy-handed. I do get a kick out of the Joker and Carnage and the fact that these guys just do not get along. Because it's just, it's, we've seen this before with Joker stories. Don't approach the Joker from a place of ego because that will just piss the Joker off. And Carnage... Is, is not about the art and that's the joker is an artist in his own mind and carnage is just about chaos i like that because it points something out and we see that less and less when the joker is just this agent of chaos provocateur for the joker it's not just about the chaos it's about the production and I like that Carnage, who is just about the chaos, doesn't get the Joker and vice versa. So I like this a lot. Uh, There's a lot of very interesting things in here. I think the biggest problem with this is that it's too short. It it is a prestige format one-shot, but it is probably the shortest prestige format one-shot I've ever seen. I it's not digital, so I haven't counted the pages. It can't be more than 30 pages, maybe 35 on the outside. If this were a three issue mini series or an 80 to 100 page graphic novel, this would have been a much, much better story. It would have given time for the ideas of the psychopath treatment to develop, it would have allowed. Bruce and Peter to interact a little bit more. 
and it wouldn't have rushed this fight, extremely chaotic and extremely all over the place final fight. If it had gone instead a, a longer graphic novel length one shot or a three issue miniseries, I think this would would be an all time classic. And instead, it's just kind of a forgot. Everything but the cover is pretty much forgotten. And I just go back to what I said uh, earlier, like, why not go a bit more gonzo with this? Why not have a carnage eyes Joker, right? Like, like have the symbiote totally take over Joker and just let that thing loose in Gotham for a while. I mean, it well, actually would have been a ton of fun for Cassidy to be jealous because the Carnage symbiote chose the Joker briefly over him. Yeah. Or incorporating some other Batman and Spider-Man. These, these are the two characters in comics that have hands down best rogues galleries. And you only used two who were the most popular at the time. Sure. If it had more space, you could have seen... Harvey Dent and Doc Ock interact. You could have seen the Rhino and Bane, which would have been interesting to see Bane just go, you're an idiot. Why do I want to team up Team up with you? It could have been more interesting if it had a little bit more space because it could have been way more gonzo, like you say, Will, and had a lot more fun. The Riddler and Mysterio, or yes. Scarecrow and Mysterio, either or. Working with the the you know Riddler having some sort of elaborate puzzle box with Mysterio's tech or Scarecrow combining the illusions with the fear toxin would have been an all time great visual. Sandman and I'm, Clayface literally getting combined. Exactly. I'm I'm now imagining the Arkham Asylum issue of Batman TMNT, but with Spider Man and Spider Man villains. And I'm disappointed in what we could have had and never got in the 90s and probably never will. Let's, let's be real. Marvel and DC will never publish another crossover again. The business is not there anymore until Disney eventually absorbs Warner. Uh, <laughs> I think they're, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Tony. This is incredibly rushed. Every beat here is so pushed forward yeah i just i sit back and it's like you like joker is like oh i've got this madness virus that i'll mention once at the beginning and then i'll mention it again at the end it's like wait you've got a virus that drives people insane this should be a major thing and not something that is mentioned twice sort of offhand as a minor plot point with all of the other madness going on in this book uh, I do want to step in briefly and say that for whatever pacing problems this thing has, they are dwarfed by the next story we're going to pick up. <laughs> oh, we will get there. So so let's keep these issues in perspective, gentlemen. That is true. And I mean, you get, and again, I guess it's also something that we'll see in the next one. You get the random doctor villain who pops up here not really villain in the next story and this one it's like the scientist who's like ah, i've got this cure okay again no time to understand what this person's motivation is short of you know oh they're they want fame and they work for the government 
and they have a whole lot of hubris that is going to come back and bite their head off their neck. Yeah. Because it's carnage. She eats brains. Brains. If you are unfamiliar with either of these franchises, the stuff that is discreet to that franchise goes completely over your head because there's no time to explain who Dr. Kafka and what Ravencroft is and the tiny cameo from Jeremiah Arkham and Arkham Asylum. At least Kafka gets some character. Jeremiah is just sort of there. And from what we know of Jeremiah Arkham at this point in his career, this sort of mind-altering thing is not exactly outside of his wheelhouse. I mean, this is a guy who in his first appearance kept talking about how behavior makes the man, that you change behavior and the mind will follow. So this doesn't seem like something he would be against, except for the fact that he's not the one doing it. Which, again, would have been an interesting character beat if you had time to do anything with Jeremiah. I just think it's weird that the Joker bites Batman sort of out of nowhere. It's like, Joker does a lot of things. He's never really been a biter. He bit me. That's weird. Batman even says that. It's weird that you bit me. Yeah, I I was kind of like, where did that come from? Again, Carnage Carnage is a biter. But but I, I don't know why the Joker just suddenly... I mean, again, it was something I was reading. It was like, oh, that's going to come back, right? Like something with the virus or something is like, no, no, Demetrius just was like, oh, the Joker bit him. And Batman made a comment about that. It was weird. It's a nibble. Also, the, the Joker wearing a Pagliacci costume in that scene, extremely weird. Like, I know I'm not that much of a Batman reader. But Joker's never worn a Pagliacci costume before, has he? I think there's a Silver Age story or another where the Joker tries to rob the opera. But it is not like it's a regular occurrence. Yeah. And and by the way, he only wears the costume. He doesn't do the Pagliacci. I believe that's a tramp style makeup. I don't know clowns well enough because they freak me out. He doesn't do the makeup. He just wears the outfit, which makes it even more glaringly weird. There's no reason why he's wearing that outfit in that scene. And eventually, I mean, you get to the end and the Joker is, you know, going to spread the madness virus through Jack in the boxes inserted amongst Christmas toys. It's like, wait, this story takes place around Christmas. I haven't gotten any indication of, that at any point in here yeah there's no snow in any of these scenes it it really just feels like you gotta wonder did dimiteus have a longer script and then it was like yeah you've got this many pages so cut what you need but just get it to fit in this make it work and this is also meta storytelling wise a wild thing to think about when you remember that the Killing Joke and Craven's Last Hunt, which was originally a Batman pitch, were contemporaries. To read this and go, we could have gotten a Batman line influenced by The Killing Joke for, or excuse me, The Last Hunt instead of The Killing Joke for years instead. And this kind of hints at what the potential of that sort of Batman line through the mid 80s could have been like, which is a fascinating what if possibility. 
my last comment is that uh, many of the layouts in this book are ass, and I did not care for them. But the figure work is really good looking. I agree about the layouts, but I think the figures themselves look pretty cool. Bagley draws a hell of a Joker. His his Joker is gleeful. And I, I like someone who can draw a Joker who looks like he's enjoying what he's doing and isn't just sort of frozen, grinning, and grimacing. It's like, no, no, this guy absolutely looks like he's having a good time committing all of this, I was about to say, carnage, chaos. Oh, oh, oh. I see what you did there. And also, you can tell that there are two separate inkers here. There are pages that the art looks so much better than pages. And, and I don't know which is which. I, I have no idea if the more detailed one is Hannah or Farmer. But you can tell that one of them added and kept more detail than the other, which is always a frustrating thing with multiple artist stories. And it's interesting to see it in an inker rather than a penciler in this case. My only assumption is that it's Hannah because Hannah worked with Bagley a lot more in this era but it might be that it was supposed to be Farmer and they got Hannah to come in and quickly ink the other pages because he knew Bagley's style because they needed to get this thing out the door so can't be I can't be sure either of those arguments would be valid well, that means it's time with Spider-Man and Batman Disordered Minds on the big board. All right. So, well, this one, as we said, is not going to be up near, is not above Batman versus Predator. Don't think it is above Batman versus the Spirit, or Batman the Spirit down at 75 either. Batman versus the Spirit, totally different book. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that. I think the uh, Azarello Batman the Spirit is more along those lines. Well, this is nowhere near like the 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 dregs. This is not. There's nothing problematic here. It's not bad. It just doesn't have enough time to do what it wanted to do. We have got Batman Judge Dread at 107. Oh, it, it's not above Batman. The the mad joy that is Batman Judge Dread. I'm thinking somewhere in the 120s. And that's just, I think it's oddly comparable to Batman Harley Quinn. I just opened up the list. And, and that's, I'm not looking at your spreadsheet. And I know we're recording this a few episodes ahead of where the website is but it feels oddly comparable to about batman harley quinn club of heroes that that range in there so that's down currently at 136 so 120s 130s seems to be a good spot for this yeah because again it, it i see what you're saying with the batman harley quinn is another one of these stories that should have been legendary it should be a foundational sort of thing and instead, it's Batman Harley Quinn is so mired in no man's land that you can't hand it to a casual reader because they're like, well, what is going on with the city? Well, what do you think? So 133 is digital justice. That is serious monkey astronaut territory right there. Indeed, indeed, indeed. 
I still like Mad Men Across the Water at 131 a bit more. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's definitely, it, it, it falls below Mad Men Across the Water. Refresh me on Shadowbox at 135. That is the, the gang war in Chinatown. Dixon and Lyle. It's Tim Drake just after he's come back to Gotham. King Snake and the Ghost Dragons. The Protoss probably... people to the first Robin. Sorry. Sorry, Will. Yes. Yep. I, I would probably put this above that. Yes. And right above that is the first arc of Young Justice. Will's first exp- exposure to two-time GLAAD award-winning writer Peter Allen David. <laughs> no, 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 no. I had read his Star Trek adaptations. True, true. His first superhero exposure to two-time GLAAD award-winning writer Peter Allen David. Still better than Joe Kelly. <laughs> oh. So I you know I think this goes in between digital justice and young justice origins. Works for me. Making new number new... 134. Yep. I love this next one. I love it so much. You fucked up, Tony. <laughs> okay. So, so so Matt, after you introduce this one, I've got I've got a good story about how I got my hands on my copy of this. Okay. Yeah, so our final one is more or less the reason for the season tonight. This is Spawn Batman, written by Frank Miller, with art by Todd McFarlane, colors by Steve Olaf and Ollie Optics, letters by Tom Orsikowski, and unshockingly, if you read it, no credited editor. Cover date is April of 1994. Stolen tech from the former Soviet Union leads Batman to New York, where he runs afoul of the defender of New York's homeless, the supernatural vigilante known as Spawn. But as a figure from Spawn's past reappears, can the heroes put their differences aside to stop her before she starts a global conflagration? Just one second before Tony does that. Uh, Problematic creator watch. Uh, Frank Miller noted xenophobe with all other manner of issues. But yeah, Tony, go ahead. How did you come across Spawn Batman? So my local comic shop, shout out to Greg Gage at Black Hat Comics in Sugar House, Utah. He gets people bringing stuff in all the time. And one day I'm in there chatting with him fairly recently. And he's going through and someone had bought one of those comic collector starter packs from the home shopping network which ah! dates this horribly and he had brought in to to greg a packet or, or a box full of packets of comics each one was a little over an inch big in a single giant poly bag and he said the craziest thing there is so much random stuff in every one of these but every single one of these bags has a copy of spawn at least one copy of spawn batman he had a stack of spawn copies of spawn batman about four inches tall next to this box of comics that he was sorting which tells you how overprinted this one shot was you gotta think this is the mid 90s this is 1994 and this is frank miller 
and Todd McFarlane. There were very few names in comics bigger than either of those guys at this point. And this is the most Miller and the most McFarlane comic that you could possibly create. It's too much Miller, Matt. <laughs> oh, I kind of wish I had taken a, like a little hash marks and made a hash mark every time Batman calls Spawn a punk. Because, like, I would say, granted, I don't drink, so it, it wouldn't have worked for me necessarily. But for someone who does, if you took a shot every time Batman called Spawn a punk, you would be under the table by about a quarter of the way into this comic. Oh, oh but see, see, at the end, when they're kind of like making peace with each other, he switches to kid. I'm stunned that Spawn didn't respond every time to call by calling Batman a fascist. Because that's absolutely the sort of mid-90s dialogue that would have happened. But Frank Miller is a fascist. So, I mean, you're not going to have that. You know, for someone who you'd think was so clearly anti-Reagan and anti-fascism in Dark Knight, Boy, how he falls as he progresses as a creator. I, I want to just toss in one aside since you brought up Dark Knight. This is the note on the inside cover. Spawn versus Batman is a companion piece to DC Comics' The Dark Knight Returns. It does not represent current DC continuity. A companion piece to Dark Knight Returns. Weirdest With, fucking thing I've ever read on a cover. And the second thing that's wild about that, that is the only point in this publication where it's referred to as Spawn versus Batman. The cover is Spawn Batman. The trade indica immediately above that note is Spawn Batman, not Spawn versus Batman. The publishing indica is Spawn dash Batman. Nowhere else is it called Spawn versus Batman. Not edited worth a damn. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is Image Comics from the early 90s. They did not believe in editors. They believed in raw creativity. And that's why Image Comics came out, you know, with the frequency of Blue Moons and Hen's Teeth, except for Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, which came out like clockwork month in a month out. I have to say, by the way, you're referring to, to Image not having editors in the past tense. That's still the present state of Image Comics. Unless the creative team hires, goes out of their way to hire an editor, the books are not edited. Anyways. That is true, but many of them have learned it's better to hire an editor. <laughs> th 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 that was I feel like a point of pride in image in the early years not a point of we don't have the money to hire an editor th th this was pure raw creativity yeah come to image comics we uh we don't have any uh, quality control yeah come on so one thing and it's interesting Tony because you'd mentioned you know how theoretically Batman versus Predator is the closest to something with 
continuity or continuity impact of these three for the longest time this one seemed to have some connection because of that final page because at the end batman hits spawn in the face with a batarang that bisects his face and shortly thereafter in the spawn ongoing suddenly spawn's face is tied together with uh shoelaces and when asked, he says something about, you know, oh, a, a guy, this happens in run-in with a guy in black. What eventually is revealed is that that was, I think, the ghost of Houdini or something in Spawn 19 and 20, which were released sometime later in the 20s. Spawn actually goes from 18 to 21. And eventually 19 and 20 are released later to fill in the gap which explains why Spawn has the football face. But but for a while, it was believed that this was actually in continuity with Spawn, which is weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, this whole thing is weird. And I know that uh, Tony likes it because it's bad. I just don't like it because it's bad. This has uh, some of the best bad Frank Miller style narration. And to know that it's written by Frank Miller himself elevates it to a level that I just think is the funniest damn Batman comic ever published. Unintentionally funny. This is this is Batman at his his worst. I actually had a quote when Batman is dealing with the unhoused of New York. Mostly he hears sob stories and outright nonsense. It's like, oh, that's so delightfully sympathetic of you when talking to people who are down on their luck, Frank Miller, and through you, this version of Batman. So can, can I tell you the biggest thing that I don't like about this Go is that Spawn, Spawn's number one arch enemy is the violator slash the clown, a psychopathic demonic clown. Batman's number one arch enemy is the Joker, a murderous psychopathic clown. How did Todd and Frank create this comic without going, maybe our two evil psycho murder clowns should get together and raise some havoc? Like, that just seems like the most no- brainer of a concept and yet we get this weird russian cold war homeless person converted into cyborgs plot well i i wonder if dc had more control over this more control over what would fly in this than say you know spider-man batman because and i thought this was interesting just thinking about the insider reporting you hear about uh, something like Fast and the Furious, where you know where the Rock demands that oh, I only get hit seven times and I immediately pop back up, that sort of thing. Whenever Spawn gets an advantage over Batman, it is basically off-panel. And I wonder if the idea of including Joker in the story, DC might have just said, "Nope, we're not doing that. We're not giving this upstart that much here." Or this is me not knowing anything about the sequel War Devil, right, Matt? Yes. Or they might have said, why don't we save that for the sequel that we published? 
back some inside baseball on these. The top build character in any intercompany crossover is the company that is publishing the crossover. So Spawn Batman is Image is the publisher, and Batman is more or less licensed by Image. Same with the previous. So Spider-Man was the top build of the one we were just talking about. It was published by Marvel, who licensed Batman. And then there was the sequel Batman Spider-Man that was published by DC, what, like a year or two later. So this was the image published part of this two-part crossover, while Batman Spawn was the DC published part. So maybe DC said, we're not going to let you use Joker because we'll save it for when the simultaneous sequel comes out which was, I assume, supposed to be a year later, because, but because Miller and McFarlane were so slow, they came out at basically the same time. I knew War Devil did not have those characters, because War Devil, I remember, was this crazy supernatural thing with Roanoke Colony, but I was correct. There was supposed to be a third that came, was supposed to come out a number of years later called Inner Demons, and that was Joker and Clown, but that, was, that never happened due to all manner of delays and problems, mostly on Image's end, because again, it was a Spawn Batman. Well, if this next one that's out for Christmas is not Clown versus Joker, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, and this feels like this was the kind of thing Miller was really into in the mid-90s. I, I've never read his scripts for the RoboCop sequels, but this strikes me as, okay, there's got to be something there with cyborgs and old Soviet tech that Miller didn't get to do in one of his RoboCop sequels that he decided to use here. And it also, again, clearly has that right-wing bent with, you know, oh, this charity that's supposed to be benefiting the homeless. No, that's just a blind for a maniac who's trying to take over the world. Don't trust charities. Here's something that always throws me about this one. Do we ever actually see Batman's face? Or is it covered completely in shadow, the lower half of his face, this entire book? It's covered in shadow more than it's uncovered. There are a few points that it's uncovered but for the most part it's more covered in shadow and he never takes the cowl off there's even a point in the bat cave where alfred's like you know you could take the cowl i was like "Ah, sometimes i prefer to keep the cowl on that almost strikes me as uh this was done marvel style and miller decided to hang a lampshade on the fact that mcfarlane never draws him without the cowl the dialogue in this is so amazing though you, you if say by that, amazing, you mean shit. Oh, it's it's so bad. It comes back around to being good. I, I love Alf, Alfred trying to offer uh, Bruce chamomile tea. And he says, they say chamomile is sure to prevent nightmares, even the self-inflicted variety. And in the next panel, Bruce, I don't get nightmares. I give them. Oh, that is, yeah, that's, that is the most Miller thing that Batman might have ever said. I am the one who knocks. I, I now need that little Heisenberg meme 
Only you got the little hat pulled down over the cowl with the ears <laughs> poking out. Heisenbat, I need that now. So someone make that for me and I will be overjoyed. And by the way, any comic that suddenly decides 40-something pages into its 60 to suddenly like, oh yeah, by the way, our villain has a bunch of nukes and wants to start World War III. That's not the thing you put in at the end. You don't end your book with that. That's what your villain should be doing. This is, it's, it's like step one, cyborgs. Step two, uh, step three, World War II. Profit. Step four, profit. Yes, exactly. Uh, I didn't like the beat where like Batman was hypnotized for like a page uh, or somehow entranced by this villain. And then we just move right past that. Yeah, because there's, there's no way Bruce just believed this without researching this person. And they don't think they did a great job of hiding their sinister plans. There's a lot of leaps of logic in this one. Did it drive either of you nuts that Spawn went from being masked to Starfaced on on a whim? Just it seemingly just depending on what Todd wanted to draw in that panel. I mean, McFarlane literally paneled the panel. When they first start fighting, it, Bruce uses the power gauntlets that came out of nowhere. It's literally first panel is masked, second panel is unmasked, third panel is masked, last panel of the page is again unmasked. It is the weirdest inconsistency throughout this entire one shot that it's just his mask appears and disappears on a whim. Yeah, the, the art here is just McFarlane having fun. And I realized that I really believe this thing was done Marvel style. I really and truly believe McFar McFarlane was given a plot, drew this, and then Miller just sort of went to town over it because it's nonsense. It's a lot of nonsense. But it does have a newscaster giving exposition, a la both early Spawn and Dark Knight Returns, which I just absolutely loved in all the worst ways. Yeah. And, and let's also not forget that this was released in memory of Jack Kirby, a, a comic that I cannot imagine Jack Kirby would have ever read. But But, you know as was the style at the time. I, I do like that our villain also, after, you know, after the apocalyptic war that she wants to start, is going to take over the world with a three-step plan involving therapy, technology, and force. That'll yeah. work. Oh, one of these things is not like the other. And again, this is, this is Miller, you know, leaning into that right-wing rant of his, like, she positions her ideology as environmentalism. It's overpopulation. It's it's people who are destroying the planet. So we'll just get rid of the people by destroying the planet. Yeah, it, environmentalism. Right. It works on its racial goal because I don't know. It just does. But ugh, this thing is this is just a mess. It's terrible, but terrible in a way that I find remarkably, remarkably entertaining. 
friend of has not appeared on this show, but friend of WMQ, third amigo Rob Lynch, has often said the the worst sin a piece of media can commit is not being bad. It's being dull. This is definitely not dull. Yeah, it this is this is not White Knight, especially White Knight 2, which I found to be oppressively boring and dumb. Say what you will about McFarlane. This book looks good. Oh, definitely. And it visually it holds up. Like this looks like something you'd pull off the shelf today. The art is kinetic. There's there's real action. There's a lot going on, and his designs are cool. The robots look cool. Everything that goes on here is well illustrated. It's just crazy it bonkers. And the whole first two thirds of it is built up just for that two page splash. Yeah, yeah. The two of them swinging over Gotham together. It's just it's an amazing incredibly good two-page splash but the whole rest of it is nonsense just to get to it image and dc are like could we sell a book of just pinups and they're like no that probably wouldn't work we gotta write a story around it yeah i and i don't think i have anything else on this one that means it's time to put Spawn Batman toward the bottom of the big board. All right. I mean, I, I'm resisting making jokes here. This is one of the worst comics I've ever read. It should be a top three book. Oh, boy. I mean, okay. We've read things that were arduous to get. Yes. yes. This is not that. Yes. This is uh, not it, War Games down at 174. If if this had been a miniseries, it might would have breached that. All right. All right. Let me give you a spot, Will. I think I... I okay. Okay. One, 168. This is better... Then that two part, then that the the scarecrow annual, where again scarecrow is just sort of like aggrieved at everyone and has this random ending to sort of bring things around to where it needs to be. I don't know if it's better than above that. Is it is not better than one sixty six? Robin the Boy Wonder, the first the or, first appearance and origin of Robin. I could see it going above Beware of Poison Ivy, the first Poison Ivy story at 167, but I do not. It's So it's either going to be 167 or 168. I had a good day at work today, so I, I'm not going to, again, take out my aggrieved status as, a, as an academic. 168, good for me. Okay, so it is 168, so it's... <laughs> wound up a bit higher than some of the stuff we've had the past couple of weeks. Hey, having good art does a lot for a shitty story. I think bad art maybe tends to bring a good story down more. I mean, right? That's why we have so so many chapters of Injustice so low. But 
you know, when you got a decent artist on your shit book, turns out less shit than it would otherwise be. And you can give a shitty book a lot of credit for at least being fun. Yes. A dull and shitty comic is just the worst. It's just a slog. I don't think we've had many slogs on this. We've we've had some slogs on the print column. Come on, Bad Day Riddler. Um, but yeah, uh, that looks like it does it for tonight. Thanks for coming on the show, Tony. Where can people follow you online if you so wish to be? So if it's still operating by the time this episode comes out, I am on Twitter at Brawl2099. Um, I write regularly for Comics XF, uh, one column with Matt, uh, covering X-Men books that no one else is covering at the site, one column with Armand Babu doing Superman books, and then just random stuff that strikes my fancy, usually something Spider-Man related. And I'm also at thecomicon.com fairly regularly with reviews and uh, columns. Well, thanks again, Tony. Uh, so next week, uh, we're looking into the future to see three possible futures for Batman's son, Damien. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaugh. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl. Our very own Tony Thornley. That guy right there, that freaking guy. <laughs> Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, at Batchat Comics, hopefully. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the show on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me, again, hopefully still, on Twitter, at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Devon. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.